Aaron Salter was a retired Buffalo Police Department officer and a beloved security guard. Pearl Young was a longtime substitute teacher for Buffalo's public schools. She was originally from Alabama, but had lived in the city for decades. Roberta Drury was 32 and vibrant and outgoing, according to her sister. Ruth Whitfield had stopped at Topps Friendly Market after visiting her husband in his nursing home on Saturday. Some of the other victims who lost their lives in the mass shooting in Buffalo, New York this weekend were Deacon Hayward Patterson, Marcus Morrison, Andre McNeil, Geraldine Talley, Celestine Cheney, and Catherine Massey. The Department of Justice is investigating the attack as, quote, a hate crime and an act of racially motivated violent extremism. Ten were shot and killed. Three were wounded. Eleven out of the 13 victims were black. As we continue the conversation about the tragedy in Buffalo, we look at the history of race in Buffalo and America. After the break, we'll talk about the role of white nationalism and extremism in the attack. But first, we start the conversation in the community that's been affected most by this tragedy. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Fox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Ongoing struggles in any of life's roles can lead to fatigue and feeling helpless. Prioritize yourself by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist. Be matched with your therapist within 48 hours and get 10% off your first month of online therapy at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Let's get into the conversation. Earlier, we spoke with Pastor George Nicholas of Lincoln Memorial United Methodist Church in Buffalo, New York. Pastor Nicholas, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor. Since the shooting, how are you holding up? How is your congregation holding up? Uh, Well, uh, we're holding up well, um, considering our congregation is is a congregation that's really engaged in, in the social gospel and and it's really an outward-focused uh, congregation. So, um, you know, I think we're in a good position, a good state to kind of process this, but more importantly, try to work towards um, providing support for uh, the people who need the help in the community, and but also advocating for some things in community that can prevent this from happening again. You held Sunday service the day after the shooting. What was it like? to come together as, as a congregation, as a community that day? Uh, we had a lot of visitors, a lot of white people who came, uh, and which was good. Uh, you know, I did something a little different uh, in terms of, you know, our, our children placed uh, uh, 10 roses on the altar to um, honor those who had uh, been killed. And then, you know, we had our, you know, some singing, but then I opened up the floor to uh, the people and, and sort of similar to the question, first question you asked, how are you doing? You know, mm-hmm. what, what are you feeling in this moment? And uh, one of my members, 
I specifically called out one was one of our, our young ladies, Jenea, who one of her teachers, she's a high school girl and, and one of the women that was uh, killed in, on Saturday was a substitute teacher. And uh, she had connected with Jenea. And so she was really heartbroken by that. And then one of my other members, Ebony, uh, her uncle was was murdered. And I felt so glad that, or felt good about our community that that they felt like they needed to be. I mean, it'd been easy for both of them just to, you know, pull the sheets over their head on Sunday morning and say, "Not today." Uh, but it was important for them to be in that space, and um, they both gave powerful testimonies. And then, as it turned out, there were other members who were connected to some of the people that had died, and and they shared. So we just took some time just to hear from folks about where they are, uh, where they see God in this, uh, where they see themselves in this moment. Um, and so I thought it was a really beautiful moment. Um, and, but really, you know, our country needs to repent, to repent of the evil it has inflicted upon the indigenous people, upon uh, African people in its creation of this republic. And, and all throughout our history, black folks have been othered from its inception, three-fifths of a man. Uh, we've been marginalized. Bodies of our women have been objectified. And, and we never as a nation have really acknowledged this truth in a real meaningful way. And so when you, whenever you don't acknowledge some real egregious behavior, um, that behavior has a tendency to repeat itself in different forms. This event on Saturday is an extension, right? It's another chapter of the assault upon black bodies um, that we've endured <clears throat> since, we are, uh, since we reached these shores. And I'm hopeful that at some point, what is it going to be that's going to get us as a nation to acknowledge the past harms, the current practices, and, 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 and really seriously work to, to try to change? You, yeah. You've expressed a lot of frustration about the politicians who visited Buffalo in the last few days <laughs> to offer their condolences. Um, President yeah. Biden is heading there today. Is, is that what's at the root of your frustration or is it, is it something more? I mean, my literal my frustration is just the dehumanization of Black people in this republic. Another root of my frustration is a, as a Christian pastor to know that, you know, not all of my colleagues share this same intensity about how immoral Black people's experience in, in terms of living in this republic has been and how the church has been complicit in many ways in in that um and and my frustration with politicians is this is and we are grateful and you know i guess i'm supposed to be participating in some of the stuff with the president you know whatever however there has to be a sense of urgency to prioritize the conditions of black people in america the COVID 19 experience exposed the vast health disparities 
that we have in this country. And one of the things I do is I do a lot of work around health equity here in Buffalo. And the fact that in that same community, the tragedy didn't start at 2.30 on Saturday. The tragedy is the fact that, that in that very same community, there's such high rates of hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, asthma. In that very community, there's this, you know, environmental challenges with air and water quality. In that very community, many of the parents in those communities are, are forced to send their children into schools that uh, are struggling. Um, and, and, you know, the urban educational experience is, is not the same as uh, our white brothers and sisters in their suburban environments. The tragedy is that when you think about that supermarket, is one of the few venues that people have access to healthy food, right? And, and now the shuttering of that market has created a food access crisis. Whereas if that would have been in a market at a suburban area and it had to shutter, there, would, there are other markets that are within, you know, proximity where those communities could continue to, to shop and, and get the things they need for their family. As you said, in the coming weeks, there will be talk of accountability and the charges faced by the alleged shooter. But apart from that, what does your community need right now and beyond this moment? Right now, we need people to care. Care beyond the outward, visible, and important actions. The vigils, the prayer times, the president coming in, the, the memorials, the, the things of that nature. Those things are, are important. And you know, it, it's, ritual is very important in the African-American community, especially the ritual of, of, of mourning and, and death and funeralizing. But we need folks to really make a commitment to invest their time, their resources uh, to creating the beloved community uh, that we so desperately need to have in our community. To look at the, the, the quality of life factors that so many of our people struggle with and say, how do we as a country, as a community, as a city, as a state, what have you, how do we create the beloved community where, where people not only feel safe, but they're in spaces where they can, can, can live and prosper and to not be so inflicted with chronic diseases, to be able to send their children to school, that they're excited about the educational experience and the future for their young people, where we don't have residential segregation, where we have good air and water quality. Um, to work towards building that, right? That's what I think, I, I, I hope we, a place that we get to. That was Pastor George Nicholas of Lincoln Memorial United Methodist Church in Buffalo, New York. Here with us to talk about the history of that community is Henry Lewis Taylor, Jr. He's a professor of urban and regional planning at the University of Buffalo. His focus is on distressed urban neighborhoods, social isolation, and race and class issues. Professor Taylor, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Professor Taylor, how would you describe Buffalo's Black community? 
I mean, I, I would agree with uh, Pastor George. Uh, you have a large and, and, and vibrant community uh, that's that's organized, that uh, a community that understands that it faces great challenges. Uh, and it is a, a community that has built multiple organizations and, and groups to, to attack and deal with those problems. Uh, but it is also a, a community that has built its, that is being built on land that belongs to other people. And as a consequence of, of, of that, it's the, the site of what I call predatory investments, uh, in which uh, owners of rental properties charge exorbitant and high rents. It's also a, a community that um, has struggled on the economic front uh, based upon the way in which racism operates and, and, and functions. Uh, this economy has produced an African-American community with high rates of, of unemployment. Uh, 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 and a weak attachment to, to the labor force. And, 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 and in part, we have only a small number of, of people who are working full-time year-round jobs. There are large numbers of individuals who have part-time positions. About 70% of, of our community of renters uh, and they are rent gouged, with many of them paying 36% and more of their income on, on housing. Uh, so it, it's a community in, in which there are significant health disparities between it and white communities, disparities that are based upon inequities in the way in which the healthcare delivery system uh, is, is, is delivered and developed in, in this area. So it, it is a community whose this resilience and toughness and, and optimism and hope is situated against a backdrop of struggle. And this backdrop of struggle has become a, a cultural phenomenon and, and a force. We are a community that will fight and continually fight uh, for our liberation and freedom. And I think that, that reality of, of Blacks as a progressive force in the United States, a force that's always fighting and battling to create a society built on social and racial justice, is also the forces that makes it a target for the right wing. Professor Taylor, you've talked about how, historically speaking, many acts of violence towards Black people have happened in churches. Why is it significant that in this case, the shooter targeted a grocery store? Well, churches are a place of, of worship, a place where the soul is, is nourished. The Topps Market uh, has emerged over time as, as a kind of, of sacred place. And, and that sacredness is driven for two reasons. One is Buffalo's Black community is, is, a, is a site of food apartheid. Uh, before Tops, uh, African-Americans had to travel great distances in order to grocery shop, moving out into the suburbs or other far locations in, in the central city just to get food. I remember one of the great comments someone made to me expressing the difficulties of this journey when she said, Dr. Taylor, bags, babies, and buses don't mix. 
She was talking about the journey to Grocery South. So the battle, and it was a battle, we fought for many years in order to get that Topps grocery store, that one place on the Buffalo's east side where you could go to purchase a, a, a food stuff. Going into that store was also an opportunity where you were always going to find somebody that you knew, somebody that you could laugh and have a minute break while you were grocery shopping. Uh, it was a place where I worked with med students and, and, and we would send our students there uh, to deepen their understanding of neighborhood life and community to that store so that they could see the social life. They could better understand the problems and difficulties of getting healthy foods. So it was a, a point that was extremely significant. This guy who is a member of the white nationalist underground military apparatus did extensive research on this city of Buffalo to identify some important and significant gathering place. Probably recognized that outside of the church in Buffalo's east side, this was the single most strategic target a place that represented our victory, one victory against food apartheid, the one place where we could get food stuff without traveling to distant locations and places, a place that he knew based on that work and probably multiple surveillance trips to Buffalo that it would be filled with people. And he targeted it. And in, in a lot of ways, realizing that the destruction of that kind of grocery store site would also be a symbolic message that no place where you gather is safe. No place where you come together as a community is safe. And in my view, that was the reason that he targeted a grocery store, hmm. understanding the impacts that it would have on, 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 on that community. We got this tweet from Humans for Humanity who says, Buffalonian here, this nation has become inured to gun violence. We see it, it appalls us, we do nothing. This conversation is hollow. It feels like going through the motions. We comfort each other in spite of this dystopia we've created for ourselves, yet we persist within it. And, and I'll just say first, Professor Taylor, I hope I hope no one listening is is comforted by this conversation. I, I don't think comfort is what we're we're trying to do necessarily. But how do you hope we think about the community impacted by this shooting? What do you hope we don't forget? Because I think we're we're at a point in this country where people don't really know they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do with this. They don't, they don't know how to process it. But what would you say? We have to connect the dots. This shooting was not an isolation. We have to understand the association between the shooting, the anti-critical race theory movement, and the multiple efforts to suppress black voters across the United States and their relationship to the rhetoric that's coming from the Republican Party and the followers of the Trump movement, 
all of these things are, are interlinked and, and, and interconnected. If you read carefully some of the words and the messages that come from the Republicans and especially the conservative wing and, and the language in the manifesto of this young man and the manifestos of, of others who have left these messages behind, there is eerie similarity in the messages that are delivered. The critical race theory movement is especially harmful in fueling this because it, it represents an efforts to rewrite the history of African-Americans and make it appear as if the conflicts has never existed, as if blacks are no longer oppressed and exploited, as if slavery was a happy time where, where uh, primitive Africans were civilized. It then makes it easy for people to believe that, that Blacks are thriving, that they're taking jobs and opportunities away from whites, while at the same time hiding the, the kind of precarity and economic volatility driven by this current uh, 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 economy. And so when people whose lives are, are uh, on the economic edge, like many white workers, and they want to know what's going on, what's happening. And they listen to, to people from the right, and particularly the, the Republican Party. They're told things like, oh, the Blacks took your jobs. The immigrants took your job. That Mexican took your job. That Latin person took your job. Your economic insecurity is based on them. If we get in power, we'll give you jobs. We will give you opportunities. We will make America great again. Young guys, they hear this. They translate it into their own realities. And these become the foot soldiers for these underground movement. And these are the ones that become a threat. How do we respond to this? I, I think we respond to it at, at multiple levels. At, at one level, we, we respond to it by continuing to elect progressive people to political office uh, and continue to battle to control government at all levels and to keep them out of the hands of the right wing forces in this country. The second thing is we continue the battle to improve in, in our lives at, at down in our neighborhoods and communities. In a place like Buffalo, that means a battle to end substandard housing and rent gouging. That's one of our top problems, a root problem. And, and by a root problem, I'm talking about a problem that generates all other types of problems that we face. For example, we believe that, that uh, uh, the conditions inside of these housing and neighborhoods are producing the health-based issues. They're making, creating the issues that uh, thwart education and the like. So that to me is, is our response to the conditions that we see face. That's Henry Lewis Taylor, Jr. He's a professor of urban and regional planning at the University of Buffalo, focusing on distressed urban neighborhoods, social isolation, and race and class issues. Professor Taylor, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A.
Let's get back to our conversation about white nationalist violence and the shooting in Buffalo, New York. The attack in Buffalo, New York, cannot be separated from the world of white nationalism and online extremism. Joining us to talk about this this world and the role it likely played in the shooting is Kathleen Ballou. She's a professor of history at the University of Chicago. She's also author of Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. Professor Ballou, welcome. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Adolphus Belk, Jr. He's a professor of political science and African-American studies at Winthrop University. Professor Belk, it's great to have you. Good to be here. So you both study white nationalism and white violence. The shooting that happened three days ago, I'm curious to hear what your initial reactions were to this act of of racist violence. Professor Belk, I'll come to you first. Difficult thing to hear um, in the context of repeated attacks against people of color, religious and ethnic minorities and the like. But it also hit home in some ways because I went to undergraduate school in central New York and had many really good lifelong friends who were from Buffalo. And so my heart immediately went out to the people of the East Side for this tragedy that they've lived through and now have to figure out on the back end. Professor Ballou, what about you? You know, I, I've studied acts like this for a long time and the, the sting of it doesn't go away. I don't have personal ties to the community in Buffalo, but listening to the stories and seeing the pictures, listening to the interviews with Professor Taylor and Professor Belk, I, the human cost of these things is astronomical every time it happens. And every time we're called to do these shows, to do these interviews, um, it's it's just uh, another round of the same thing. I mean, Buffalo belongs on a list with the El Paso shooting, the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting, the Charleston shooting, uh, the Christchurch mosque shooting. Uh, we could go on and on. All of those attacks, although they have targeted different uh, vulnerable communities, all of them were perpetrated by people identified with the white power movement and its ideologies. Um, And that means that there are things we can do. There are concrete actions we can take um, about this extremist threat to our society and um, about the way that these ideas are creeping into our political and media mainstream. Professor Belk, I think Lisa's tweet there echoes what we're hearing from a lot of people who are frankly tired of these conversations about white supremacist ideologies and and its dangers. It's not new. How can we address the problem of these ideologies without giving it a larger platform? White supremacy as an ideology was for a very long time at the very center of mainstream American politics. It takes you through 240 years of enslavement, 100 years of Jim Crow, 50 years of racist housing policy, all protected and supported by white supremacists operating in plain view within the institutions of the American society. It was Congress, it was the presidency, it was the Supreme Court. Um, But as a result of the freedom movement of the 1950s and 1960s and other movements, people push back against those things to provide people of color and others a firmer position in the American society, hoping to secure their civil and human rights. But white nationalist movements flare up in environments where white people see increased political and economic competition from people of color and where they also see economic stagnation. If they believe that people of color are advancing at their expense, then that creates an environment where a white nationalist movement can flourish. 
And you saw this in 2009 after Obama's emergence in the Great Recession. We've seen it since the Trump campaign and the presidency. The Federal Bureau of Investigation has called white nationalism the greatest source of domestic terrorism in the United States. They said this in 2019. And just last year, they talked about needing tools to confront the threat that it represents within the United States. So this is a problem that has been identified by the people who were targeted for many years and more recently by federal law enforcement authorities as a significant and critical threat. And so it requires engagement. Doing nothing will get us more of what we've witnessed over the last several years. Have you seen that acknowledgement that white nationalist terrorism is is the greatest domestic threat to the country? Have you seen that translate into any substantive policy changes? What we've seen recently is the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, which looks backward but also deals with this moment. And you're finally having a federal measure against lynching and seeking to punish those who not only commit that act of terror, but also those who help to coordinate and plan with them. There is another proposal that's currently being considered the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act. And this would offer yet another tool to confront this particular problem head on in looking at the threat that white supremacy poses, the way that white nationalists have sought to organize and recruit using the internet as a fertile ground to recruit people not only like the assailant who committed this particular atrocity, but people from law enforcement organizations, um, military organizations who have combat training and knowledge in order to strengthen their ranks and to execute similar attacks. So a proposal like this could go a long way to confronting the problem as it is manifesting itself. Here's an email we got from David who says, instead of focusing attention on the shooter and weapons used, there needs to be a wider and more intense shaming of the sources of indoctrination that impressionable of that impressionable young man, the hateful groups, bloggers, pundits, and podcast influencers that fertilize and cultivate the very ideas that lead to such heinous acts. And we should also say that another major difference uh, between acts of of racist violence in the past and and those we're seeing today is this disturbing trend of live streaming. Professor Ballou, how has this changed the landscape of white violence when it can be so easily broadcast and shared? So the white power movement has been using the internet or networked computers in one way or another and using social network violent, uh, social network activism to spread these ideas since the 1980s. So this is not new. Um, They were certainly early adapters. Um, But what is new, of course, is the same thing that has impacted everyone, right? Which is the centrality of social media in our lives. The amount of our life that happens on computers, especially during the pandemic. Um, And and this is intensified by the social isolation of quarantine and, and the way that the pandemic has has moved so much of our lives online. Um, that means that this is just much, much bigger and faster and more dangerous than it was before. And in the case of looking at uh, live streaming, um, I believe the Christchurch gunman was the first to live stream the attack on the mosques in New Zealand. Um, and certainly that gunman seems to have been a major inspiration for this one, um, not only in the live streaming, but also in the manifesto document, which in Buffalo, is largely cut and pasted from the one in Christchurch. So we have direct lines of radicalization from one shooter to another. Um, One reason that looking at this is important is that 
uh, these documents have tactical information that shapes the next attack and makes it easier to elevate the number of people killed. Um, but there are also the ideological underpinnings. And that comment is a good comment. I think we need to be thinking about accountability um, and the way that these ideas run from the fringe well into our mainstream. Professor Belk, the most recent FBI crime data shows that in 2020, 35% of reported hate crimes were motivated by anti-Black bias. Hate crimes against Asians and Asian Americans also rose when the pandemic began. And and I want to be careful not to make assumptions about why these crimes are rising, but how have we seen the politics in this country coincide with some of these acts of violence? Even though white supremacy as an ideology is in many respects existing in the extremes of the society, anti-black bias and anti-Asian bias is still broadly held within the American society. There were some researchers from Stanford a number of years ago, and though the data is a bit dated, they observed that a majority of Americans, about 51%, held explicit anti-black attitudes, and that number increased by about five percentage points when they measured implicit bias against black people. And you see similar attitudes against Asians and Pacific Islanders. And so in an environment where some are already predisposed to hold negative attitudes about certain people of color, you then have others who are saying things, kind of taking language from great replacement theory and inserting it into their conversations as mainstream elected officials or office seekers. And it's bringing those attitudes front and center to people who might have a disposition to believe some of them, if not all of them. Former Representative uh, Steve King from Iowa once famously said that you can't rebuild your civilization with someone else's babies. And there have been others on different networks and programs who have talked in these ways, though this particular young man seems to have been radicalized online through different channels. And so that brings what was a fringe attitude into the mainstream. And you have people now who are campaigning on these ideas and drawing some support from segments of the electorate. And that creates a a really difficult circumstance for people who are trying to organize against white supremacy and violence directed at people of color and religious and ethnic minorities. So what can we do about this? Well, you know, my colleague talked about the value and importance of education. Well, we're living in a moment where the type of education that could really do something to uproot these negative attitudes and perspectives is under assault across levels of education and across the states where education is largely determined by local and state governments. That's Adolphus Belk Jr., a professor of political science and African-American studies at Winthrop University, and Kathleen Ballou, a professor of history at the University of Chicago. Thanks to you both. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.